So I'm going to draw your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is our series called Indomitable Faith. And that means strong faith, solid faith. We want to be strong and solid in our faith. We don't want to be flaky Christians or diet Christians, uh, locale Christians. Uh, we want to be strong and courageous for the Lord. And the book of 2 Corinthians helps us to meet that objective. Now, we're going to talk today about false teachers. Now, you know that in, in and among the Christian church throughout the last several decades, and probably going right back to the beginning of time, there have been numer numerous scandals that have taken place where well-known Christian leaders are discovered to be involved in sex scandals. We had one break recently with Ravi Zacharias, sex scandals. We hear at times of Christian leaders who are discovered to be embezzling money from their churches and so forth and so on. Now, by the way, just to set your heart at ease a little bit, um, while it tends to be in the headline news when celebrity preachers do these kinds of things, you can bet your bottom dollar that for every celebrity preacher that's doing it, there's a hundred run-of-the-mill pastors doing it. And for every hundred run-of-the-mill pastors doing it, there's 10,000 church congregants doing it. Uh, the Church of Jesus Christ is always going to be infested with people who are not committed to holiness. And of course, as we talk about this, we understand our own sinfulness, our own propensity towards evil. We do not look at those that sin judgmentally, but at the same time, we want to commit ourselves to high standards of holiness. Uh, any one of us could sin in the most egregious ways, sexual sin, financial sin, relational sin, whatever it might be. And so we always need to keep our guard up, right? But I'm just emphasizing this because what often makes the headline news is the famous preacher or teacher that is suddenly discovered to be having an affair or several affairs on the side. And people get out their guns and start to shoot at them. But there's another kind of problem in the church that doesn't seem to get the same level of attention, and that is false teaching. We tend to give false teachers a pass. And we go after the guys that might preach the truth, but have sinned sexually or financially. But we often give those that twist the gospel or communicate a false gospel a pass. And in this passage, we're going to be reminded that God is very much concerned about false teaching. And the Bible warns us not to be duped by false teachers. We need to keep our antennas up, if you will, and make sure we're listening carefully to what we're being taught, that it squares with the Word of God, and that we, in fact, are accurately understanding the Word of God, because sometimes there's Christians that think, you know, they have final insight into the Word of God, and they evaluate others' teaching just based upon their insight. They're not willing to have their views adjusted. We understand that. But the Bible warns us to not be duped by false teachers. And really, this is about truth, right? Because if you think about it, our faith rises or falls on what we believe. Do we value emotion? Yeah, we do. We are emotional beings. Do we value meaningful relationships? Yes, we do. Do we value experiences? 
Yes, we do, but we also value truth. What you believe matters. And what you believe or don't believe or wrongly believe will affect your walk with the Lord. So why be on high alert? So we're going to start off with a couple points from this passage about why we should be on high alert. And then there's a couple points later in the passage about how we should respond. So why be on high alert? First of all, because the church is special. As Paul is communicating his warning to the Corinthian church, in verse 11, or uh, verse 1 rather, of uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says this, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Now, previously in passages like 2 Corinthians 3.1, he'd sort of said, you know, it's not, not the coolest thing to boast. Boasting's not great. But he's, he's asking the church sort of tongue-in-cheek, could you give me a little permission to boast for a minute? He says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, that is the church, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. So borrowing from this imagery of a marriage, Paul sees the church as the bride of Christ. And as a minister of the gospel, Paul had been instrumental in preparing the bride to meet the groom. Now, normally in modern day weddings, it's not the men that are instrumental in preparing the bride to meet the groom. It's usually the maid or matron of honor, the, 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 the uh, flower girls. What's the other word I'm looking for? The, the bridal party, sorry. This just proves my ignorance in this area. Uh, the, the mothers, maybe the grandmothers, the aunts and so forth that are all involved in preparing the bride to meet the groom. But here Paul sees the role of a minister of the gospel in a similar way, a minister of the gospel is involved in preparing the bride, that is the church, to meet the groom to whom she is betrothed. And his desire is to present the, the, the bride to the groom as a pure virgin. Now we understand what this word means, right? Someone that hasn't slept around. Someone that doesn't have other relationships. Someone that hasn't committed the sin of fornication. This is a word of purity. And much like a groom, the wedding party will do everything within their power to protect the virginity, or at least should do everything within their power to protect the virginity and purity of the bride from compromising herself or being pursued by another male. In the same way, Paul had a special affection in his heart for the church. And he wanted to make sure that the church, as the bride of Christ, was not contaminated or corrupted in any way by false teaching. So he had a big heart. We could say a protectionist spirit for the church of Jesus Christ. The church in his mind was worth protecting. And it should be for us as well. We should fight for the church. Fight for doctrinal purity within our church. Fight against false teaching in our church. Because we're not just some organization that gathers to shake hands and hug each other and sing together. We are the bride of Jesus Christ. 
And we will one day be presented to our groom. And we want to be presented to our groom as pure spiritual virgins before the Lord. Do you fight for the bride of Christ? Are you willing to stand up and speak out against anything that would blemish the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ? Secondly, we guard against false teaching because the church actually is susceptible to it. The danger of false teaching and destruction and corruption within the church is not some theoretical notion. It can actually happen. Churches can be compromised. People can be deceived and duped. Using another feminine illustration, he's used the illustration of a bride. Now he takes us back to Genesis chapter 3. And he talks about Eve. In verse 3 it says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning. Notice the word as. That as, it actually happened. So he's going to draw it into the present. Your thoughts, that is the thoughts of the church, will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you will put up with it readily enough. Really? Paul is concerned that the church would be duped by a false gospel, false spirits, and so forth. And then he kind of makes this comment, and frankly, I think you're kind of vulnerable. You, you actually might believe this stuff. So we need to think about this in our own churches. We can never let off the gas when it comes to confronting false teaching. We should never assume, oh, it can never happen to us. You know, our teachers are strong. They know the Bible. No, it could happen to us. We could fail and fall into false doctrine if we're not careful. You know, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, the Apostle Paul challenged the Galatian church not to accept false teaching. Another gospel, he calls it. And in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, he says, if anybody preaches a gospel other than the one we delivered to you, listen to the next words, let him be anathema. Let him be accursed. You know what that word means? Let him be damned to hell. Whew. Kind of harsh language, don't you think? If anybody preaches a gospel other than the one we preached to you, let him be damned to hell. That's what the word means there, anathema. That's how serious we need to be about making sure the gospel of Jesus Christ is not corrupted. He goes on to say, indeed, I consider that I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles. So this, I believe, is, some have suggested that it's a um, reference to the 12, the original 12 apostles, and that they were sort of known colloquially as the super apostles, and then there were sort of a lesser apostles. But I don't think that fits the context, because if you move on further, he kind of 
suggests that these people are false teachers. So super apostles is likely Paul's way of sarcastically referring to false apostles. There were other people going around teaching a gospel, but it wasn't the true gospel. And Paul sarcastically uses a positive term to actually diminish them. And he says, I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles, even if I'm unskilled in speaking. Remember, he was accused of that previously in chapter 10. And maybe he wasn't the greatest orator. Maybe he was better on paper than he was in person. Who knows? But it doesn't really matter because he spoke the truth. He says, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. So Paul here, if he, he's sort of like saying, hey, if I had to weigh content or oratory skills, I'd pick content any day of the week. He said, I may not be as great of a speaker, you know, as these celebrity apostles that you're so enthralled with. But I'm not inferior to them in content. I've stayed true to the word of God. So he starts this section by referring to a historical event. Right back to the first sin. Eve is duped by the serpent. Now what makes that passage uncomfortable is the context. Eve was in a perfect garden, had personal encounters face to face with God, had no peer pressure, hadn't been abused, you know, raised by poor parents, hadn't gone through some secular cultural Marxist or atheistic public schooling system, had no wants, had no needs. Everything was great. This is pre-fall. But she was still duped. So it's, it's uncomfortable because we're like, oh man, if she got duped, then certainly we could be too. Because we have all these other corruptive, corrupted systems and structures and people around us that are speaking lies into our lives. It can happen, if it can happen under perfect circumstances where there's no ambiguity about who God is or what God's plans are, then it can happen to us as well. And this is why he says, he uses the word as. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve. So it can happen to you. So what are we supposed to watch out for? There's three things mentioned here. We're supposed to watch out for any gospel that presents to us a different Jesus. Now, what, what that means, or maybe we should say what it doesn't mean, no one's going to come and say, well, I'd like to present to you, you know, Jesus Smith or Jesus Jones. This is a totally different Jesus. This, no, what they're going to do is they're going to supposedly present to you Jesus Christ, but they'll misrepresent him. They'll twist his words. Maybe they'll say, ah, he's not really God or he's not the eternal son or he wasn't born of a virgin or he didn't really die on a cross. Or they will misrepresent his balance. They'll make him out to be a God that's just charitable and loving and 
passive and never really judges, or they'll make him out to be just a wrathful, vengeful, unloving God. They'll still call him Jesus Christ, but it's not the same Jesus. So we need to make sure we're continuing to read scripture and study scripture so that we have a balanced view about who the biblical Jesus is. Secondly, we have to watch for a different spirit. Now, many of you will know that the New Testament is written in Greek, and in New Testament Greek, everything is in what we would call capitals, just all capitals. So when you come to a word like pneuma, which is the word for spirit, the translator has to exercise some discretion and look at the context and say, okay, is this pneuma the Holy Spirit into which English we would add a capital S or is this the human spirit or is it a um, demonic spirit? So there's some interpretive, I guess, ambiguity here in terms of how we would understand this. But in this context, I think probably the best way to understand this would be any spirit that does not reflect the spirit of Christ. So an example of this would be a spirit of fear. Uh, the Gospels, or the Bible tells us in um, 2, Corinthians, or 2 Timothy 1.7 that God did not give us a spirit of fear. So that doesn't mean that if there, you know, there's a lion running at me about to eat me, I'm like, yeah, whatever. It's not that. It's not kind of a foolishness or I step out in front of a car. Oh, I'm not scared of getting run over by cars. But the idea is that we don't allow the circumstances of life, be they physical or spiritual or relational, to push us down and to cause us to doubt or question the goodness or the promises or the precepts of God. So we don't live our lives, for example, we don't live our lives afraid of death. We don't. If you're afraid of death, there's a spiritual deficit in your life. It doesn't mean we throw ourselves in front of the bus, but we're not afraid of dying. We may not particularly be looking forward to the method, but we're not afraid of dying because we know what takes place beyond the grave. We don't live our lives in fear of man. We're not man-pleasers. When we're thinking about the decisions we're going to make, we don't say, well, uh, people might not like me for that, so I'm going to compromise. We don't do that. God has not given his people a spirit of fear. So if a gospel is being presented to you or a message is being presented to you whereby you're, you're not being focused on resurrection hope, you're not being reminded of the promises, the precepts, the call of Christ, this is a false gospel. This is a false truth. So we need to be careful of that. Now, if the passage is meant to refer to the Holy Spirit, then it equally applies. We need to understand the Holy Spirit is not God's active force, as Jehovah's Witnesses and others teach, where God just kind of waves his hand and air emanates from God's hand or there's movement. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's part of the triune Godhead. He convicts us of sin. He regenerates us at the point of our salvation. He equips us with spiritual gifts. He indwells us. He guides us. He enlightens our mind to truth. It equally applies. So different Jesus, different spirit, whether a spirit of fear, the Holy Spirit, different gospel. As we mentioned earlier, Paul's pretty strong on that in books like Galatians. 
We don't put up with this kind of nonsense. But why is it that so many people do put up with this kind of nonsense? Because their Christianity is not rooted in Scripture. They're cultural Christians. Or they are concerned about what the world thinks. Or they just don't spend time studying the Word of God. But we're called here to stick to apostolic teachings. It seems that some had diminished Paul because of his oratory skills or lack thereof. But Paul's like, that might be true, but I spoke the truth to you. And that matters. So when the flashy preacher shows up and he uses lingo and language that pulls in the crowds, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's not preaching the truth. You can preach the truth and be an incredible communicator. But just because you're an incredible communicator doesn't mean you're preaching the truth. And we know, if we're aware of what's going on in broader Christianity, that there are many out there that are very compelling communicators, but there's not a lot of knowledge and not a lot of substance, and perhaps there's even a false gospel woven into their performance. So while there's nothing wrong with, and you should in fact develop to your maximum capacity, the quality of your speaking skills, don't be duped by the personality of a teacher and fail to see the corruption if there's corruption there. Better to have a plain, straight up, content laden, compelling, clear and urgent message from the word of God than something with flowers and perfume sprayed all over it that doesn't actually reflect the truth of God's word. I was speaking to a brother this week and he said to me, he doesn't go to our church, but he said to me, you know, I used to go to a church and at one point I just realized, like I, I never leave church convicted. I, I come and I, I hear things that are said that are true, but I, I never leave convicted. I never leave challenged to change. Well, that's what a lot of preachers do, unfortunately, because I could thumb my way through the Bible and find just all the nice passages that you'll just readily agree with that won't necessarily challenge you. And we do need to preach those passages, by the way. You know, the encouraging passages, the affirming passages, the passages that basically say, hey, church, you know what? You're doing really well. Praise God. And let's just brag on him for our sanctification. There's lots of that, and that comes up in the text. But we also need to constantly be challenged to change because while I have many strengths in my life, okay, praise God for them, I want to overcome my, my greatest Desire is to overcome my weaknesses with the help of the Lord. So I want to constantly be challenged by God's word to overcome my weaknesses, not just overlook them because of my strengths. So speaking the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth in love, it's really important for the body of Christ. So how do we do this? Well, the third point is this. Let's not grow soft in the areas of teaching or enforcement. Sometimes Paul, we, we sense from this text, was under a bit of pressure to stay silent. 
And um, that's going to take place in every culture where there's going to be a little bit of pushback. People don't want to be challenged all the time. They don't want to be stretched. Paul experienced a bit of that. And we don't know the circumstances specifically, but as we enter into the next set of verses, it's apparent that for whatever reason, Paul had sort of throttled back a little bit in challenging this church to be generous. And this is probably why we have two sermons previous in this book about generosity and the need to be generous to kind of prep them for this warning that he was going to give that he'd, he'd sort of allowed other churches to primarily support them and sort of coddle them and help them along. He wanted to be gracious, but he, he, he kind of sat back at, at one point and thought to himself, maybe I've been a little too gracious with this church. Maybe I haven't challenged them enough in the area of generosity. So look what the text says from verses seven through 11. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anybody. I didn't ask for any money, didn't ask for any help, didn't ask for any support. I was just getting it from elsewhere. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my needs, so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. So something's going on here where the Corinthian church was accusing Paul. Ah, he's not that great of a preacher. Uh, there's the super apostles over there. We'd rather listen to them. And Paul's like, what on earth? I came and I taught you the truth. And I came and I, I, I barely even asked anything from you. <laughs> Other people were supporting the work of the ministry. So there's a soft very gracious, but clear confrontation going on here. Paul admits in verses seven to nine, frankly, to treating this church a little too leniently. And I almost get the sense in the text, there's a bit of regret there. Treated the church a little bit too leniently. Provided a little too much for them. You see, generosity can be overused. If you just keep giving and giving and giving to someone, but not expecting anything in return, it can actually damage them. Parents know this. You want to raise a kid that's not super well-functioning? Just do everything for them. Never challenge them, never stretch them. Same in church life. If you don't challenge God's people, you know, put the cookies in the little higher shelf, make them reach for it, make them work for it a little bit. We tend to grow lazy. This seemed to open Paul up to accusations of being blasé. They kind of overlooked the guy, disregarded the guy. But truth prevails when it is the truth of Christ. And so Paul, again, reinforces his love for the church, but he also signals them that he's going to press them to responsibility. He's going to press them to be responsible. And then fourth, rebuking false teachers. It's critical that we rebuke false teachers. Verse 12 and following read, and what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. So I think this is probably referring back 
to the individuals known as super apostles, which again helps us to interpret that description as false teachers. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond with their deeds. So their deeds amount to nothing. Their end is going to be nothing. Paul encourages the church to continue to expose false teachers. Now the best way to expose false teachers is to preach the truth. Did you pick up on that in the text? Verse 12, and what I am doing, I will continue to do, preaching the knowledge of God's word in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. So this is a very wise tactic that we need to consider. When people preach falsehood, sometimes we challenge it directly and we point out the falsehood within their message. But actually, a more meaningful tactic is just to preach the truth. And what will happen, because we believe the Spirit of God is involved in the doctrine of illumination, he illuminates our mind to truth. He helps us to understand truth. So it's like the Christian may not understand something to be true, but when they hear it, if the Spirit of God is in them, they're like, aha, that makes sense. My spirit bears witness with that person's spirit. The Holy Spirit is, that makes sense. I know that to be true. And you've probably experienced this many times in preaching and teaching and discussions with others. It's like, okay, this makes a lot of sense. Why didn't I think of this before? I used to think this way, but now I know that it's true. Paul undermines the claims of false teachers by continuing to preach the truth. If you're only used to false teaching, you may not see it. But when you hear truth, you know it. It becomes obvious that you were previously duped or misled. False teachers, he reminds us, are to be expected. They're, they're more the norm than the exception. Just as Satan is real, false teachers are real. If Satan's around and he's doing his thing, we can expect there's going to be false teachers. Because Satan's not just going to go around yelling, hey, Jesus isn't God, or you can, get to work, you can get to heaven by being a good person, or you know, the Bible's not true, or God didn't create the world. There's going to be some of that. But he likes to be deceptive. He likes to question. He likes to scientize the world so that we think that all truth is discernible with my eyes, my ears, my mouth, my nose, my hands. If I can touch it, see it, smell it, hear it, then it must be true. This is the essence of science, right? Which says that we have the capacity to understand everything that is true. And if we can't prove it through our methods, then it mustn't be true. Whereas a biblical worldview says, oh, that's true. You're going to experience truth through your senses. But there's also something called divine revelation. This is a higher form of truth. 
And you don't taste, touch, smell, see divine revelation in the same way. But when your spirit is made alive in Christ, God reveals truth to you. You know it. Even if the unbeliever denies it, you know it's true. You know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. You know the message of God is true. You know that God created the world. In fact, it's plain to us, the book of Romans chapter 1 tells us. But it's in the futility of our thinking, our thinking, that we suppress the truth and we push it down. This is the problem with science to the exclusion of divine revelation. This is the problem of education that doesn't recognize the supremacy of God. This is the problem with governmental policies that don't recognize the supremacy of God. All you're left with is trying to figure your way through life using our weak little feeble senses to determine what's right and wrong. But when God reveals truth to us, we know it to be true. So what the devil does is he convinces the world that divine revelation doesn't exist. That you are God. This is the lie of Eden. Your eyes will be open. You can figure it out. You don't need a Bible. You don't need God. You don't need a church. You don't need preaching. You don't need prayer. You don't need worship. You don't need fasting. You don't need any of that. You can figure it out. This is deception. He disguises lies as truth. Packages. He's the master marketer. Constantly disguising lies in attractive packages. And because they're disguised, we need to watch carefully for them. So what do we need to be watching for? We need to be watching for messages from pulpits. We need to be watching for messages from books. We need to be watching for social justice causes that when they're assessed and analyzed actually sound a lot more like what's being said on the news by secular godless people than by the word of God. We need to watch that we are not drawn away from the true gospel into a socially palatable gospel. There was a lot of people, they're fine with us preaching a part of the gospel. What part do they like? God is love. God is gracious. God is merciful. What part don't they like? God is your creator. God is your Lord. God is a wrathful God. God is a holy God. That's the part they don't want you talking about. So if you're a preacher or a Christian, you just want to draw on the crowds, what are you going to do? What's my sermon on today? God is love. What was it on last week? God is love. What was it on the week before? God is tolerant. What was it on the week before? God's a social justice warrior, or whatever it might be. You have to watch for that. You have to be careful. Third, you got to watch for those that are of the flesh. This is the language of the text. That is those that don't value biblical sexuality, that are soft on sin, that take their cues. Have you noticed a little bit of that in our culture? Where we actually have churches that claim to be Christian and their sexual ethics reflect nothing of what the church has taught since the beginning of time. 
doesn't reflect the New Testament or the Old Testament in any way, shape, or form. It reflects the world. You can marry whoever you want. You can get married however many times you want. You can get married to people of whatever gender you want. You can stay married. You can bail out when times get tough. You can add another person to the marriage if you want. You can mess around on the side. After all, God is loving. God wants you to enjoy life. That's a false gospel. We even have preachers and teachers that dress in sexually provocative clothing as they're preaching. This is, this is not an attempt to be culturally relevant. This is a false gospel. You also have to watch for how false teachers understand faithful witness. A faithful witness is a person that is obedient to God's word regardless. And as a result of obeying God's word, you are testifying faithfully as a witness for Christ, whether people like it or not, accept it or not, come your way or walk the other way. That's a faithful witness. But unfortunately, we have many in the church today, and we've seen it during the current discussions about the church's opening and closing, where their understanding of a faithful witness is being liked and loved by the world. Close your church down. You got to be a faithful witness for closing my church. That's a faithful witness. You got to love your neighbor. Okay, so I'm not going to preach the gospel, not going to visit the sick, not going to lay hands on the sick, not going to ordain elders, not going to celebrate the Lord's Supper not going to baptize people, not going to offer a holy kiss, not going to mourn with those who are mourning, not going to exercise church discipline because that's unloving. Think about that for a minute. A faithful witness is not about cultural acceptance. It's about biblical obedience. What else do we notice in false teaching? When you skirt the issues, when you double talk, when you're forked tongue, when you say something, but then throttle back when you sort of try to twist and maneuver around God's word so it's, it's not maybe as hard to accept. That's false teaching. When it's all grace and there's nothing offensive or it's all judgment and there's no grace, that's false teaching. False teachers, you'll notice, will often chastise, ridicule faithful men and women as being irrelevant, out of touch not in tune with the times. But what we're seeing in our world, thank God for this, is that faithful churches are actually growing and bearing fruit. And unfaithful churches may grow for a little bit of time, but they never last. Because there's, no, there's nothing to really keep people coming. It's truth. It's transformation. It brings people back to churches. If your church is just about, you know, feel good, just, just have a wonderful experience, you know, I can, I can find other ways to do that without giving up my Sunday morning or my Wednesday night or whatever it might be. Let us stay true to the word of God, unapologetic in our preaching and in our adherence to the word of God. God has revealed truth to us and it matters. Let me end by reminding us of what it says in Ephesians chapter five. There it's speaking about the relationship of men and women in marriage. And this is another feminine illustration from the scripture where it's speaking of the 
role of the husband and preparing the bride to be more like Christ in the church. And it says there in verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. The word here is like water that washes us and cleans us up and makes us pure. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ uses apostles and teachers of the word to purify his church. But Christ is also interested in purifying his church. And he does it through the word, just as the faithful preacher teacher does it through the word. This is what purifies and cleanses and ensures that Christ's church is like a pure virgin to one day be presented to her groom in all of her radiance and beauty. So let's work hard, church, at defending the truth of God's word. It doesn't mean that we're always going to agree on all the details of things. But when it comes to the basic fundamentals of the faith, we must defend them at all costs so that God might be honored and glorified one day as we are presented to him as his faithful and loving and pure bride. 